So I'd like to share with you what we're going to be doing, especially I see we have a few visitors from the world of deep silence. For the structure of our evening, what Bhante and I talked about was taking some of our time to address these questions to the extent that we're able, which will vary according to what was asked, then having a short walking period and then going to the real wisdom which is the wisdom that you've experienced that might be shared or noticed in the group this includes of course the wisdom of questions whether they're to me or just questions that exist. Um, But the space in between of the walking will give an opportunity for the mind to settle again. Because one of the things that uh, one of the things I've hoped you've learned in your practice more than learned, deeply experienced is that to touch something that's really going to shift the heart we have to be open sensitive to the doorway that exists beneath the words, in the silence, in the immediacy, the apprehension of how things are, and be willing to move with awareness in that space between direct experience and language. So each time we pause, and there's this invitation to speak in meditation to speak the truth that's where we that's where we're living and of course all of us i'm sure have been humbled by the fact that it's not easy to dwell there it's a learning process no problem but just because we're still learning and we fall off into the constructing mind, into the habits of speech, into the speediness, the excitement, the 
stimulation that arises in the feedback loop of interpersonal contact. Just because that's been some of the experience, we know the difficulty. But we've also, I think, from time to time, touched the actual meditation that's truly the integration of interpersonal contact, uh, the riches of our traditional individual practice, and that place where silence and speech meet and where apprehension and language don't have to be strangers. It's a learning process. It's okay to be humbled by it. But that's where we want to explore together. When this does happen, and when we come up against what's not working, somehow the mind is clinging. That's all. It's not news. It's just clinging that prevents us from doing that. Clinging to silence, clinging to the constructs. It's all clinging. But when we do touch that, the wisdom doesn't come from this seat in the front of the room. You understand? This is really quite important. This is a uh, practice that really provides the opportunity to not only touch wisdom, but to, if you will, um, not be afraid to manifest it, to speak it. So when we go in the second half of the evening to questions, I mean to um, your experience, trust your wisdom. I'm saying that now so that in your walking, or even as you listen to me theoretically having some wisdom, A, you can be skeptical about my wisdom, but also you can be trusting of your own. to deconstruct this teacher's seat. To empower, right? To break the constructs of sage on a stage. Right? and all the disempowering that that does and that sets up in the most serene and beautiful way externally Dhamma as entertainment where I'm here to say really wise things and you're there to absorb them and not act See what I'm saying? In the interaction, something can come alive. So this is where we're headed. So uh, that frames what is about to happen here, which, of course, combines with...
the logistical problem of having picked up one pile earlier and then there's a new pile here, some of them, you know, Bless your hearts. It's it's very sweet. Um, so clearly, we'll just touch some of what would be touched, and <laughs> another disappointment in life for some of you. What can I say? <laughs> Live with it. Uh, some are easy. Could you please repeat the tripod again? Thank you for the brevity. You get answered. Um, the tripod of suffering is also called, formally in the Buddha Dhamma, the asavas. The word is translated as outflows or taints or intoxicants or floods. The eruptions and the inflows. I hadn't heard inflows. But it has the sense of the mind being flooded, the heart being flooded, And in that flood, we are flotsam and jetsam. We are lost. And in brief, we're talking about ignorance, the hunger for sense pleasure, and the hunger for becoming. If anybody likes Pali, Avija, Kamatanha. No, Asava. It's Asava. Kamasava. Oh, Kamasava, right, sorry. Now I see what you're saying uh, from our earlier conversation, right. Kamasava and is it Bhavasava? There you go. So it's, it's, uh, it is the same thing we're talking about as the Kama Tanha and Baba Tanha in its function. But looking at it as an asava is this relationship I was talking about, where each supports the others. Um, and since I gave a talk that included that in a little little more depth earlier. I won't go into it in a lot more depth now. And this question brings a smile. Um, What do I mean by trust emergency? (laughs) And it's it's a a non-native English speaker. And I've heard this before, and it's so sweet. It's trust emergence, and emergency and emergence are quite different. That's the reason for, for the glee at reflection, 
because in a way, the emergence is very often an emergency. <laughs> an emergency is something an ambulance responds to or, um, you know, really just radically problematic. <laughs> emergence is that which is emerging, that which is coming up constantly. And it's the aggregate of experience in any particulars, but it's the rising. And frankly, the practice guideline refers, remember, to the vanishing as well. So it's a teaching on, on attuning to the impermanence in this moment of experience. Like now, you know, this voice speaking, sound waves changing constantly. If there was no change, you wouldn't hear anything. Change is the domain of sensation. So even seeing, if there's no change, there's no seeing. And if there's not enough change happening in the world, your eyes create it by themselves, moving quickly around to create the visual field as something that is continuously seeing. And then your brain pastes that together into stability. No change, no sensation. But it's also the whole big scale the rising and vanishing of a life, of events, of relationships. The whole uh, quality saturated throughout everything of instability, of the coming and going. So to Trust that. It's not to trust anything out there. It's actually an invitation to surrender to the flux, to the change. And Bhante will add something. Emergency hopefully brings us to a safe place. And maybe trust emergency if things get tough is... Go back into the pause, relax, into the body, relax. That's our trust emergency in a way. Could be. Could be. (laughs) (laughs) If I heard what you said, I would know. But I'm uh, trying to get ahead of the game here. When I first heard ah. trust emergency, it's also, uh, I also thought about emergency, I told you. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not the first time. Yeah. This is a very interesting question. Um, and I won't certainly read the whole thing, and I'll abstract it a little bit. But... Um, something like... Am I experiencing partial liberation? And it opens up 
I think, a really uh, important feature of the process of awakening, which is that as a gradual process, it's always happening, except when we're going the other way. In other words, there's this this uh, constructing process fueled by hunger that feeds on itself and reinforces patterns of pain and fear and ignorance and dissatisfaction. But there's also, in a moment of noticing and not inhabiting the press of the thoughts and emotions that are driven by hunger. In that moment, that's all it takes for the liberating process to be unfolding. You don't have to fabricate anything. You don't have to become liberated, become something. It's a beautiful, simple thing to speak about cessation. Right? It's not a, a getting in any way. It's not an accumulating. It's a relinquishment. A shedding. What's here as the shedding unfolds becomes known and manifests naturally. This is the quality of awareness that is pure sensitivity. As Ajahn Sumedho says, pure subjectivity. Just the sensitivity of being. It's undiluted, it's unattached. Nothing is fabricated. This is why it is pointed out as being already present. A kind of teaching, a quality of teaching that is emphasized in certain schools of Buddhism or by certain teachers. It's the vibrating of this awareness that is translated in experience and in manifesting as love. That's all. The Buddha's teaching on metta is actually a teaching on a-dosa, absence of aversion. In the absence of any pushing away of anything, any holding out, any resistance, in the absence of that, the activation of this awareness manifests as metta. So metta is the active component of the adosa, non-aversion.
And compassion is nothing but the trembling of this sensitivity, this native being that's here now, but happens to be covered up, happens to be obsessed, confused, hurt. And in the touching, in the trembling, when suffering touches, the natural movement to action is that compassionate response. And of course, it's also the being touched by joy. This is the mudita, or the sympathetic joy, vanquishes all discontent, allowing this heart to be moved. by the joy of beings. And of course, the balance of equanimity is exactly the coolness, the stability. That's, if you will, the, the living manifestation of wisdom. That balance sensitive to the world. You see, this is important. It's relational still. Not I am related to you. There is no need for those particulars. It's just the being in the actuality of the lived experience, but in balance. So the question about partial liberation seen in light of that way of understanding is that as these hungers vanish, or let's, let's not say vanish, as they diminish, yes, that is an uncovering that we call the liberating process, the un- process of unbinding. And one of the things that I hope that we've also touched in our practice together is the nature of being bound, which teaches us, which is this dukkha, which is this stress, this suffering, which then teaches us how to meditate, how to practice, how to live, to become unbound, We have to be willing, that's the first noble truth, as I said before, to look at the suffering, to touch and be touched by it, not to avoid it, and not to medicate it. And when meditation becomes avoidance, it's not liberating. That doesn't mean one has to do interpersonal meditation. Any kind of meditation can be avoidance, or it can be actually meeting what's present. Which then says something, as I said, about how to practice, how to meditate. And it says volumes about how to live. If we're going to take the Dhamma into our lives, which is one of the big questions here, right? Someone was asking about 
I'm ready to maybe move more into this work I'm doing, this teaching and stuff, and maybe drop my other job, and should I do this, this kind of thing. The, the bringing together of penetrating teachings with the actual lived experience is sure to reveal where the heart is bound, your own, and to open the door to compassion because one sees the binding, the heavy load our brothers and sisters are carrying. You become sensitive to that. Do you want that? Think about it. It's not a trivial question. Do you want that? And for some, there's no other choice. Could you not want it? Could you not be open to it is really what I mean there. It's not a wanting. Could you refuse it is maybe the question. Could you refuse a call to share what the heart knows is good and burn in the fires of your own selfishness until it is dust? That's the question. Sounds fun, huh? Then there's jet lag. (laughs) Um, Interesting question. Are there times when it's not appropriate to use pause, relax, open, for example, when violence is happening? (laughs) Well, actually, it's kind of an interesting question. Um, First, it points to, I think, a really interesting uh, mindset that some of us carry, and I'm not saying this person does, of trying to make a direct mapping from retreat practice to life. It's as if we've gone, you know, we go on a Vipassana retreat and we say, this is no good. If I walk this slow, I'll be late to work every day. <laughs> so a Vipassana retreat isn't teaching you how to walk. It's teaching you how to be aware. So, in Insight Dialogue, there will be places where the pause can take some time and space, and there will be places where you will be ridiculed and maybe sent to the hospital. (laughs) If you pause... And people 
want to know just what you're trying to say. Pity my poor kids. Dad, finish. These are, these are all grown kids. They've been with us for a while. Um, but also to understand the nature of the pause. The pause is the remembering. It's the stepping out of the habit mind. It's the releasing of clinging. It's the recollection that is mindfulness. That's what the pause is. There are times when the pause needs to take time. You know, count to ten when you're angry. That's a pause that takes more time. When the emotion is strong, the pause is long. That's all. So, when awareness is ready to manifest, it's the next thought moment. You can try it now. Just brighten your mindfulness and you'll see that there's no gap. There's no gap at all. You've paused, yeah? And there's no gap. It's like that. So, taking literally the circumstance of some, is a good word, emergency, someone being, you know, accosted, some violence, you don't bring mindfulness to that situation. You're going to get hurt. You could compound it. I know someone who went to, saw a domestic dispute walked right in and got killed. You don't bring mindfulness in, you know, you might get into trouble. And if relax involves the state of mind of being receptive to really what's going on, then it's fully appropriate for that to be happening as well. The analogy that came to mind when I read this question was actually one of martial arts, where the stability of the mind of the master, artist, martial artist, is the greatest advantage in the confrontation. So keeping that quality of awareness and the steadiness that's not upset by fear, (coughs) desire, and so on, then keeps you from being vulnerable and gives you strength in your action. So I hope that's helpful. And yes, you can bring the pausing also into those situations in your life where they're not normal, but they're also 
can be a ripeness, a readiness for some behavior that's not lost in stress. Let's say you're a manager at a very busy, active workplace and people are always coming up to you with questions and so on. If you begin to live your practice and pause enough to establish the sati and receive and allow and open, which if you get good at it, is it's all one move, right? It's all one one thing. The people who are coming to ask you questions will learn. They will see this. They will come to respect it. I, I know people who have done this. It's not theoretical. And to the extent that I, I'm not usually in those kinds of environments. But when I am, you know, the, someone coming into those environments who's actually present that's quite a gift. Now, if your pause is, you know, several minutes long, oh, never mind, I'll ask someone else. <laughs> but if it's appropriate and the answer gains in quality, this is certainly of benefit. Just to check in my understanding of open, the meditation guideline open, it does not undermine the Buddha's advice if you know from experience what you think, speak, or act increases the unwholesome in others or in yourself, then don't do it. Don't open to it. If I know there's something... When I open to it, let it in, get in contact with which is harmful for others or myself, I would not open to that. Buddha's advice is to really investigate the cause and effect. What effect does that have? Hello? I didn't hear a thing you said. <laughs> Should I have? I'm sorry. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. So don't believe that blindly, you know, investigate. I mean what use is if let's I don't know, can you listen for a moment? Oh sure. Uh, when I'm in a dialogue situation, mm-hmm. uh, inside dialogue, and my meditation partner is really agitated. And I do practice pause, relax, open, but the effect of that openness is I'm getting agitated, I can't hold it. Oh, yeah. For me, my understanding would be I really need to you know, stay more with pause, relax, in uh, order to that's right. be able to cope. That's right. Not you know, open, and then you get all the mm-hmm. agitation yourself. Yeah. How do we affect each other? This is this whole hormone business, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. kind of how... Uh, <laughs> Use really this, this discernment of mindfulness, of clear comprehension. Mm-hmm. Arjun Buddha Dasa described this sati sampachanya, clear comprehension. Mindfulness discerns <coughs> what kind of wisdom is needed in this particular situation right here and now, right. brought into the mind heart. Right. Yeah? 
So don't get, and it's similar like with trust emergence, don't trust anything blindly. Similar principle. If something increases the unwholesome, don't get involved with this stuff. Well, you're not trusting stuff out there. That's important. Let's not get confused. Trust emergence is not about trusting that. It's about... It's about surrendering to the flow itself. But in a case like this, where things are dynamic, where someone's in front of you who's agitated, trust emergence can be actually quite beautiful because you can attend and attune to the fact of the vibrating nature of all that, which means you're not falling into reaction to the particulars doesn't mean you're ignoring the particulars. The, the brain is quite high capacity. You can hear words, you can understand them, and the brain, the mind, can prepare for what's next. But if you're practicing in such a way that there's mindfulness and this sense of trusting emergence, it's actually quite powerful in circumstances that are, are dynamic because it goes with the flow. That's one of the qualities of trusting emergence, is a kind of a yielding to the change, non-resistive. So, yeah. And I think sometimes we can misunderstand these guidelines in overriding principle teaching of the Buddha. You know, the Buddha is not advising us to do something, follow something, if something is pleasant or unpleasant. That's not the measure stick. Right? If something is pleasant, do it. If something is unpleasant, avoid it. But really this causal relationship, cause and effect. If something feels not nice, but increases the wholesome in others, in ourselves, then the Buddha's advice is to do it. Thinking, speaking, or acting. Now that sounds perfectly logic and understandable, but... How often are we fooled by our feelings and emotions? Yeah, our habit mind. It's powerful, these habits. Not just in this life, in many lives probably. Why can't we follow our rational understanding, put it into action? Why aren't we liberated yet? Ah, this is relevant. Yeah, oh yeah, we'll stop soon. Okay, thank you, Bhante. Uh, How can I work with the guidelines of pause, relax, open when the nature of bodily sensations, for example, intensity or sleepiness, feel like they are uh, preventing me, I think it's preventing me, from relaxing and opening? Um... Uh, need to clarify and repeat something I've been saying about the relaxing. Really, really critical because without this it's not useless but it's not very useful. There are times when a kind of a volitional relaxing, a volitional letting go can happen. Mindfulness is the pause. 
this is what's present right now. One can notice where there's tension or grasping and one can release. The fact of the matter is in this human experience, that's often not the case that we can release, but that we can say relax or any other word all we want. And the body is gripping, the mind is spinning and confused, or sleepy, or sensation is intense. So here, relax points to allow, receive. What relaxing is to the body, accepting is to the mind. You understand? What relaxing is to the body, accepting is to the mind. So we receive this experience. And if it's intense sensation, if it's sleepiness, if it's dislike, if it's social awkwardness, if it's desire or fear, doesn't matter. Same move of practice. Knowing, receiving. And in that receiving, accepting, mindfulness can be stabilized. In the pushing away, no way. And in a kind of a mindfulness that is looking, 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 it's brittle, fragile. Pause, relax, then that's how it opens up the door to concentration, enabling this quite remarkable experience that I strongly believe some of you have had from watching your practice of a strong samadhi even while relationally engaged, a steadiness. And just the last, uh, I hope I didn't leave out anything burning. Um, It's a question about detailed mindfulness. And um, about can mindfulness practice and meditation without... Uh, Buddhist teachings uh, lead to happiness and other such small questions. (laughs) Um, And a question about bringing the Four Noble Truths into life post-retreat, finding support for that, uh, either, you know, asking about me as a teacher or however else that might happen. I will talk about that a little bit tomorrow, so I think that that's better to put that off. And uh, sometimes the quality of attention can be highly precise around a certain 
uh, stream of one's experience. Sometimes mindfulness can be very wide and any particular stream, either sense door or within that sense door, there's a kind of a listening where you can be very, uh, very wide and a kind of listening where you can pick out different streams. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, listening to a piece of music or listening for a voice in a crowd or something like that. So even within one sensory stream, because while you're doing that, while you're listening for that voice in a crowd, you're still seeing, the body is still sensing. So there's this capacity to focus our attention and move it around that can be useful. It can become rigid, it can become like techniquey, but it can also be useful. So when I used the word detailed mindfulness, I was referring to that quality of focusing on a stream of phenomena with a certain level of steadiness of mind drawn from tranquility and concentration. And in the absence of distraction, that coupling of the perceptual process and the sensation process is very tight. There's nothing getting in the way, all your chatter. So between that and the quality of focus, the level of detail can be quite phenomenal. Any of you who have done enough silent practice for a kind of a... You know, sometimes there's a shifting of the quality of attention, kind of an access concentration experience of becoming very intimate with what is known. And the level of detail is positively psychedelic. That's not an exaggeration. And you have all kinds of phenomena, you know, experience like weird stuff, sensory stuff that happens when this occurs. It's just various levels of that. And you can work with it, but then watch out for greed, for experience. Because if it's not liberating, it's tickling and it's creating desire. Would be one practical example, maybe from what we were practicing in one one day, the invitation to establish external awareness, watching the breathing externally. What was that experience like? Can that be done? Can that be done while in contact? I can watch the breathing of my partner. What effect does that have on my internal mindfulness? Does it support watching the breathing internally? Or is it taking the attention away, distorting it? What is your experience with that? Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, yes, of course, mindfulness can be useful without Buddhist teachings. I think that's well proven. I mean, if you ask anyone who's been depressive and then had good exposure to a mindfulness-based practice and some of the oppression of that depression has been 
lifted, this would be called happiness. For sure. Bhante whispers, uh, I was going to say something like, but that's not necessarily the full liberative process. And what Bhante said is much simpler. It's not the end of suffering. But it's a significant step in the with the what you get with the Buddhist teachings that you don't get just with mindfulness is both the other qualities of meditating mind like really cultivation of um, tranquility, of joy, of energy, of investigation, and so on. You know, the enlightenment factors, I'm just going through them again. And really pulling them out with great skill. Some of them may be developed sort of along the way with uh, secular mindfulness, out-of-context mindfulness, but it's relatively unskillful compared to the whole spectrum. And then you also, by pulling it out of context, you don't have the wisdom frame that we've been working with so carefully that guides the mind, points the mind, and opens the door to certain liberative understandings that take it perhaps from uh, well let's just say that foster uh, a further process of freeing the heart but absolutely there's benefit can be benefit of sati without buddha dhamma Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.